0: Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Have you ever prayed something like this? God, thank you so much that my sins are relatively minor. Sure, you could be much worse than you are, but in God's economy, there aren't degrees of sinfulness, and we all need God's mercy. Part three of Parabolic Mirrors is the story of repentance. It's taught by teaching team member Bob Cargo and covers Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Uh, One of the things that's true of me is that I'm an avid newspaper reader. I'm old school in a number of ways, and one of them is that though I get my news in a lot of different ways, there's just something relaxing to me about having a newsprint and paper in my hand. And though I, when I read the newspaper, I don't normally read self-help uh, advice columns. I was flipping through, through the paper a little over a week ago, and the title of one of those kinds of columns caught my attention. It said, Prisoner Regrets His Past, Can't Envision Future. Now, that's the kind of title get, that gets the interest of a, of a preacher, okay? Well, here's this man's story. He said, I'm a 50-year-old man who is serving time for robbery in West Virginia. Every day I wake up acting as if I'm in control and don't have a care in the world. The truth is, I'm scared, lonely, and feel totally helpless. All my life, I've lived on the dark side of the street, taking for granted the values in life and the love so many people tried to give me. Two failed marriages and several relationships with good women are over because of my determination to follow an unhealthy dream, not to mention all the friends I've lost as well. Now, as I look around me, there's no one there. No one to love and no one to love me. I never knew until now that chasing that dream would cost me everyone I ever loved. I know I've made bad choices in life. I deserve the time for the crime I committed. But am I also sentenced to a world of loneliness? Can I ever be loved again and be happy after all the wrong I've done? Is there someone out there who would be willing to give me a chance? Is it too late to start over? My message last week was, in a sense, directed at people like this man. Oh, the circumstances might not be as dire as this man's circumstances. But my message last week was aimed toward people who have blown it in a very big way, and they know they have blown it in a huge way. My message today is sort of for people on the other end of the spectrum. If you're one of those folks on the other end of the spectrum, this might describe your life. You are loved and you are respected. You have people that you love. You cannot imagine being in the kind of trouble that this man is in. You can't imagine being like the lady in the story that we talked about last week. In fact, you're doing, in terms of your moral behavior, really well. You you work at it really hard. You're active in your church, maybe this church, maybe another church, maybe you're even a leader in your church. Oh, you're not perfect, but you're, you're very, very disciplined morally and ethically. You really are. And if we were to measure this by batting averages, your batting average of moral behavior is way above most of the people in our culture. And deep down inside... You have to be honest. Deep down inside, you're sort of proud of that. It gives you confidence. It's who you are. If the message last week was for people who are consciously, self-consciously, irreligious and rebellious, then I would say that the message this week is for people who are self-consciously religious and conscientious. That's who the aimed toward. We're in the third week of a six-week series called Parabolic Mirrors. Let's describe what that's all about. We have a couple of props here to to bring it to your attention. Parabolic mirrors. In other words, when we look at the parables of Jesus, we are forced to take a look at ourselves and see ourselves the way we really are. I have a love-hate relationship with mirrors, okay? The earlier in the morning I look in the mirror, the less I like what I see. That's just the truth of the matter, But it's important to take a look in the mirror early in the morning so that before you leave the house, some things have changed, right? But when we see the parables of Jesus and understand them, we have to see ourselves in a whole new light. We could also perhaps call this series parabolic windows because through these parables, we get a view into Jesus' favorite topic, and that topic is the kingdom of God. Through these parables, we find out about some of the surprising elements of the kingdom of God. We find out about Jesus, the king. Now, before we get into today's parable, a little side road about the kingdom of God, okay? Because all the parables are understood in light of the kingdom. They're about the kingdom in one way or another. Two weeks ago when Randy kicked off this series, he talked about the parable of the four types of soil, When Jesus gave that parable, he explained that this parable is about four ways in which people respond to the word of the kingdom. That's literally the phrase Jesus used there in the passage, the word of the kingdom. Now, what did Jesus mean by the word of the kingdom? I think we can be pretty safe to assume he meant what he said when he first burst upon the scene preaching. In Mark's gospel, his preaching ministry is summarized this way in Mark 1, 14 and 15. After John, that is, John the Baptist, was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming what the good news or the gospel of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. It's here. Repent, key word. Repent and believe or put your faith in the gospel that is the good news. I think we can safely say, the word of the kingdom is the word of the gospel. It's the good news. Now, Let's explain what is this good news. Let me give you a chart. I'm a big chart person if you've heard me preach before, and let me explain it. If we were to say, what is the gospel, what is the good news, if I were to put it in three words, it's these three words, Jesus is Lord. That's the good news. I like how one person has put it. They said, the gospel is not good advice, the gospel is good news, <laughs> It's an announcement of something about someone, and that someone is Jesus. And announcement, it's an announcement that he is Lord. And it's also an announcement about the fact that he's brought this kingdom to earth. He's inaugurated the kingdom of God on earth. It will someday be uh, exalted, and it's all its consummation when Jesus comes back again. He is Lord. He is reigning in his kingdom, and his kingdom has come here. And the central event of the kingdom is this, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle Paul writes to the Christians at Corinth, and he says, I want to remind you of the gospel. I delivered to you what was the first importance that Jesus died for our sins, he was buried, and he was raised on the third day. That is the event of the gospel. So the gospel is about redemption accomplished. But why is it gospel? Why is it good news? It's not good news for everybody, <laughs> It's good news for those who repent and believe. And for those who repent and believe, it's good news because of what the gospel delivers. We would call these gospel promises. The gospel promises, what the gospel delivers are these things, a new record before God, that is justification, a new heart he gives us, regeneration, a new relationship with God, we're adopted, a new holiness that he puts into our lives, that is what we call sanctification, a new community of people with whom we live, that's the church, and someday a new world, everything restored to be what it was meant to be when God created it, the consummation of all things, and the glorification of Of Christ not only Christ but of his church now here's the surprising thing about all these gospel promises the surprising thing is these are not in terms of us these are not accomplishments these are gifts that's the surprising thing these are not accomplishments these are gifts Jesus has done the accomplishing we receive the gifts and I want to tell you today that changes everything for the irreligious and rebellious and that changes everything for the religious and the conscientious. It changes everything for both. Our scripture today is from Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. Luke 18, 9 through 14. And we hear what is called the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. This is what it says. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast a sign of remorse and sadness and sorrow. And he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. O oh Lord, would you please today take your word and speak to our hearts and take us to the Lord Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. Now let me tell you, if you've grown up in church like I have, The moment the the story started, you knew the Pharisee was going to be the bad guy, right? You did. I mean, if if you've been to church all your life, you know the track record of the Pharisees. You know how Jesus was always rebuking them. You you sort of get it that way. In fact, the prayer of many evangelical Christians in America today would be, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this Pharisee. (laughs) And, of course, if that's our prayer, there's a good chance we're exactly like this Pharisee, right? It really is. But you have to understand, for the people that first heard this, and Jesus says, two guys go into a temple to pray. Every person who heard him thought, the Pharisee is going to be the good guy, and the tax collector is going to be the bad guy. They knew where the story was going, they thought. Because of this, the Pharisees were the most respected people in Israel. They were the religious leaders. They were very well thought of. After the Babylonian captivity, when Israel came back and settled in Jerusalem again, it was the Pharisees who promoted moral behavior. It was the Pharisees that promoted and help people learn how to behave accordingly of what God's law would say. They were very highly respected. They were very well thought of. They were the best of the best in everybody's minds. And the tax collectors were at the other end of the spectrum. I mean, these were the people that were the traitors against Israel. They were cooperating with the Romans. To be a tax collector almost meant 100% of the time that you were irreligious and you were greedy. Nobody could have been worse. So it's really hard for me to help you to see that when Jesus tells this, tells this story and he gets to the end of it and the Pharisee is out and the tax collector is in, probably every person listening to Jesus was shocked. Most commentators don't think that there were Pharisees in the crowd, but the people were in a sense Pharisaical because they were trying to follow the leadership of the Pharisees. Now let me help you notice some of the contrast here. The Pharisee, when he prayed, he he stood by himself, probably way up front. And he stood by himself because he envisioned himself to be better than anybody else in the temple that day. The tax collector stood by himself too. He barely made it into the courtyard and he stopped. And he stood by himself because he was convinced that he was the very worst person in the temple that day. The Pharisee, when he prayed, he, he recited his record of obedience to God. In fact, super obedience, beyond obedience. He says, Lord, I I fast twice a week. As if to say, Lord, you know that I'm not required by the law to fast twice a week, but I do. He said, I tithe a tenth of, give a tenth of everything I get. Not just the big stuff you've required. I tithe every little thing I get from every different means. So I'm going way beyond what you've requested. I mean, the Pharisee stops just this short of saying, God, you sure are lucky to have me on your team. That's his attitude. Uh, The tax collector, on the other hand, can't even look up to God. He beats his breasts as a way of showing sorrow and remorse. He says, Lord, be merciful to me, literally, the sinner. That's who I am. I'm the sinner here. Now, I would would submit to you today that the Pharisee and the tax collector present to us two different operating systems in terms of how to relate to God. God. And those operating systems are going to be what we want to look at. We're going to look at the operating system of the repentant in a few minutes. And in a few minutes, we're going to describe the operating system of the legalist, of the religious good person, of the person who's sort of, in a sense, pharisaical in their heart. But first of all, let me do this. Let me define legalism. What is legalism? Legalism, There, I think there are two kinds. The first kind of legalism is the kind that explicitly believes that we are made right with God and have a right standing with God through our obedience to the law. It's the attitude, if I'm to be declared right with God, it's because my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds and I've earned it and deserved it." Now the second type of legalism is more subtle, and some of us in the room may have escaped the first kind only to fall prey to the second kind. And the second kind sort of goes like this. It says, "I know that grace alone and faith alone is the way to be justified." But the way to be sanctified is primarily about the law and me. I start with Jesus. He gets me to heaven. And then I help myself be better by trying to be a good, obedient person to God's law. Now, God's law is involved in our justification and sanctification. I'll explain more about that in a minute. But the second kind of legalism basically says this. For entrance into heaven, I know it's by grace and I know it's by faith. And I used to be so messed up. But then Jesus came along and cleaned me up. And now for the rest of my life, going forward, it's these things. It's God's law plus my discipline and a little bit of help from the Holy Spirit. That's all I need. God's law, my discipline, and just a little bit of help. And the gospel is left behind. That was for conversion. Grace and faith were left behind. That was a while back. And then in the midst of this discipline, there's also the attitude, I think I'm doing pretty good. Things are okay. You see, here's the danger of the second kind of legalism. It's the danger of moving from unrighteousness to self-righteousness. And for almost any person who's been cleaned up by Jesus after conversion, really cleaned up, the real danger is moving from unrighteousness to self-righteousness. Now you need to know something before we dig into things deeper today. You're looking at a recovering Pharisee and a recovering legalist. This is my problem You know, so perhaps today's message won't help you, but you'll know how to pray for me, okay? Because I'm going to tell you what I'm trying to get over, and I pray every day that God will give me repentance from a legalistic, pharisaic heart. All right, what's the operating system of the religious good person, the person who says, I feel good about my obedience and my righteousness? Here it is. First of all, the operating system of legalism focuses on a narrow part of God's law and ignores the rest. It focuses on a narrow part of God's law and ignores the rest. I first was exposed to this through a guy by the name of R.C. Sproul. If you've never read his books, never heard his teaching, I highly recommend him. He was so helpful to me back in the time, of the time I was in seminary. It was R.C. Sproul who I first heard say that legalism always, almost always leads to antinomianism. Now, what does that word mean? The Greek word for law is namas. Antinomianism is sort of being against the law of God or downplaying the law of God, ignoring the law of God, acting like the law of God is not important. So at first blush, the antinomian would seem to be absolutely the, the antithesis to the legalist. The legalist is all about the law. The antinomian doesn't care about God's law. How could legalism lead to antinomianism? And the way R.C. Sproul has explained it is this. For the legalist to live with himself, for the legalist to feel good about himself, he has to reduce the law of God into something little that he can keep. Does that make sense? He has to reduce it and trivialize it and ignore big parts of it and focus on just one part or a few parts A minority of the law that he can keep, and he can work on, and he can be good at. And so when he's good at it, he feels good about himself. And the result is he ignores all the rest of God's law, and his legalism leads him to be antinomian. Here, let me give you a chart that sort of illustrates that. In this chart, the big box here represents all of God's law. And it is so pervasive. It is so huge. It is so deep. It is so wide. If you ever want to get into it, read the Westminster Larger Catechism. Three questions on every one of the Ten Commandments. And when you read it, you realize how huge God's law is. Here is all of his law. And if I'm a legalist, then I just focus on part of it. Here's the part I'm good at keeping. And so that's the part I like to look at. And then to protect this part of God's law, I I love it so much, I invent some man-made rules that go around it. And that's what the Pharisees did. They had all kind of man-made rules with the attitude, if you don't break the man-made rule, you won't break God's rule. And so the focus was on man's rule and a part of God's law, but not the rest of it. That's exactly what Jesus accused the Pharisees of. He said, yeah, you tithe all the little herbs you grow in your backyard. You're not required to tithe those, but you do. But in the meantime... You forsake justice for the oppressed. You forsake giving mercy to those that are broken by sin. And you don't really love God in your heart. So that's what Jesus accuses them of. Now, if, if you know, good preaching isn't good preaching unless it gets to the point of meddling. So let me meddle a little bit. Let me give you two or three examples out of today's world. We could, for example, talk about the fundamentalist in Alabama. I'm from Alabama, so I can talk about those kind of folks. It's where I'm from, it's what I used to be. Well, the fundamentalist in Alabama can focus on things like don't drink, cuss, chew, or go with girls that do, as I've told you before. (laughs) There's a focus on things like don't use alcohol, don't use tobacco. You know, avoid sexual immorality, um, go to church three times a week, read the Bible all the time, uh, don't curse, those kind of things. But in the meantime, there could be rank racism. There could be rank sexism. There could be absolutely no concern for the poor and the needy. There could be absolutely no care for social justice at all. And there could be obesity. This practiced while at the same time wagging a finger at smoking and drinking. All kinds of uh, inconsistencies there. Uh, We could take, for example, another example out of a, a parent church ministry that I had a little bit of a relationship with back in the 70s. I don't think they're that way now. But back then, there was an idea of a lot of focus on spiritual disciplines. Memorizing scripture, reading scripture, hearing scripture. Praying according to a certain pattern of praying. Showing up for your discipleship group every week. Those were the things that were measured. You know what It wasn't even talked about in my memory was participation in a church. Sabbath keeping. Respect to your mom and dad while you were still under their authority. That sort of got shuttled to the side. Uh, showing mercy to the poor and the needy. There was all kinds of things that sort of weren't on their radar screen. Now we could go to another example too. Let's use a stereotype of an Episcopalian in New York City. That's easy for me to cast a stone at this far away, isn't it? And the pendulum sort of goes to the other side of the, the, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the pendulum, so to speak. It swings to the other end. There's all kinds of focus upon fighting injustice and overcoming racism. And, and perhaps there's a focus on ecology. One of my friends who lives in a city place like this says, my next door neighbor has a great sense of recycling righteousness. I've got to be a good person. I recycle. That's how I've proven it to you. And while at the same time ignoring all kinds of the things that God's law has to say about personal and private morality. In fact, probably today the scene of America could be summed up this way with these two different sides. Here on the left is liberalism. Here on the right is conservatism. Theologically, politically, religiously, culturally in every way. And those on this side look at these people and say, you are horrible people. How do you live with yourself? And those on this side, look at those people and say, you're horrible people. How do you live with yourself? And the truth of the matter is the gospel is a third way that's not like either one of these. The gospel exposes us to all of God's law, and we are slain by all of his law. And then we repent and believe. You see, the problem with legalism is it trivializes the law of God. It gives us cheap law. It gives us little law. It tames the law of God into something that I can keep and I can obey so that I can show up with my, maybe my small group every week and give them my checklist that I'm doing great. And that's how I lived when I was a middle school student. I went to my Sunday school class and on my offering envelope, there were five or six boxes to check and I was far from God. But every week I showed up and I checked every box Because that was the name of the game. And so we have to go back to R.C. Sproul again, a a new continuum here. And the new continuum is instead of legalism on one side, antinomianism in the middle and grace, or on the other, and grace in the middle is probably more like this, he would say. There's grace on one end. And legalism and antinomianism are kissing cousins on the other end of the spectrum. I like the way Dr. Harry Reader at Briarwood Presbyterian has put it. He said, the answer to legalism is the gospel rightly understood. And the answer to antinomianism is the gospel rightly understood. The law shows us our need for Jesus. And we go to Jesus for a right record. And the law shows us the path on which we're to live. And we go to Jesus for the power to be obedient. And that's how it fits together. So the first part of the operating system of a legalist is that it only focuses on some of God's law and ignores a great big part of it. The second part is this. The operating system of the legalist focuses on doing the outward things, but for the wrong reasons inwardly. It does the right things outwardly, but for the wrong reasons inwardly. Let me give you a hypothetical. Let's say, for example, in some small town, north, south, east, west, it doesn't matter, there's a pastor of a church of about 500 people. It's a big church for a little town. It's the first church of the town. It's a big steeple church of the town. And that pastor is tempted to commit adultery. He says no to that temptation with this line of reasoning. If I do this, I'll probably be found out. I'll lose my position of influence. I'll no longer be respected in this town. My power over some other people, the things I enjoy leading people and, and sort of being in charge, I'll, I'll lose that plus I'll lose my income. I don't know what kind of job I'll get. I have a nice house. I have a nice car. I have a nice income. Relatively speaking, it's a nice life, and I've worked for many years to get to this place in my career, so I'd better not do this. Now, is that the kind of obedience that brings pleasure to God? I would suggest to you not at all. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. Better for him to be faithful to his wife for those reasons than to be unfaithful to his wife, okay? Sometimes even the wrong motive makes you make the right decision. But I want you to examine his motives. There's nothing there about a love for God or God's love for him. There's nothing there about faith in Jesus. There's not even anything there about his love for his wife. His decision not to commit adultery was geared toward his love of comfort, his love of power, and his love of prestige. That's what drove his decision to be an outwardly moral person. And that's exactly what Jesus accused the Pharisees of. You have all this outward behavior, but it's because you love the applause and the praise of men. And even if you're not a professional Christian, you can fall prey to that as well. I heard a man pray just a week or two ago with a group of other men, he said, Lord, keep me from doing the good good things of my life in order to prove myself or to be approved. Is that perhaps your experience? You do things here in our church in order to prove yourself or to be approved. You know, one thing that's true about the culture in which we live in North Fulton County is we are an achievement culture. And that means it may be very well true that some of you have come to this church or another church and you've put on the Achievatron mentality. I'm an achiever everywhere I go, I'm gonna be an achiever at church. Whatever they ask of me, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna be noted, I'm gonna be known. Perhaps as you even come to your discipleship group, do you do the things you do there so you won't be embarrassed when you show up? Do you do the things that you do there out of pride? You want to be the best guy in the group. You want the ladies to think well of you. And in the meantime, deep down inside there are other motives. The Apostle Paul said this, whatever is not of faith is of sin. That's astounding. Whatever is not of faith is of sin. I could be sinning in every moment that I'm preaching to you right now. You don't know. (laughs) Only God knows and only I know. But whatever is not of faith is of sin. The Apostle Paul also put it this way in Galatians. He says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision have any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. That is to be what drives us. Faith working through love. Faith Working through love. The gospel motivating us, the love of Jesus motivating us. What we do is an expression of faith. What we do is an expression of love. Now, if it's not faith working through love, what are the other possible motives? And I would suggest there are three self interest, fear, and pride. If you look at the Belgian Confession, if you look at the writings of Jonathan Edwards, the leader of the Protestant Reformation, or not the Protestant Reformation, but the First Great Awakening in America. If you look at the writings of all kinds of people in our theological tradition, they have warned against the problem of often being motivated for what we do by pride, by fear, by self-interest. How different is the view of doing things by faith in Jesus? Listen to this quote from John Owen. He was a 17th century British theologian and pastor, and he is paraphrased here by Jerry Bridges. He says, believers obey Christ. Now I want you to understand obedience is what we're looking for. Believers obey Christ as the one by whom our obedience is accepted by God. Believers know that all their works are weak, imperfect, and unable to abide in God's presence. Therefore, they look to Christ. That is, they have faith in Christ while they're doing these good things as the one who bears the iniquity of our holy things. I love that phrase. In other words, even while we do good things, those good things are tainted by the sinfulness of our hearts and lives. And Jesus takes the iniquity of these holy things into the presence of God. And he adds incense to their prayers. In other words, he makes our prayers smell good by his prayers, so to speak. And then he gathers all the weeds of their duties and makes them acceptable to God. This is a picture of a small child wanting to please his father and mother. And so he goes into the backyard and he picks a bunch of weeds to bring into his mom. And his elder brother says, give those to me. And the elder brother adds some beautiful flowers to go with the weeds. And that's what Jesus does with our obedience. He gathers the weeds of our obedience. And he adds to it the beauty of his flowers, the beauty of his works, and he makes them acceptable to God. That's why in everything we do, we're to do it by faith in Christ. You see, when we pray, we pray in Jesus' name, don't we? We pray for Jesus' sake. That means our prayers come to Jesus, come to the Father through the work of the Son. And not only should our prayers be in Jesus' name, all of our works of obedience, all of our holiness is to be carried out in Jesus' name, for Jesus' sake. By faith in Jesus. So legalism trivializes the law. It does the right things for the wrong reasons. And thirdly, here, finally, the operating system of legalism seeks to make a deal with God and put him under obligation. This is how this one works. God, if I obey you, you'll be obligated to bless me. Have you ever thought that way? I know that I have. If I obey you, you'll be obligated to bless me. And that's not grace. That's cutting a deal with God. And you'll know that you've fallen prey to this kind of thinking if when you're suffering you're mad at God. The thinking would go like this, "Lord, I'm trying my best. I'm being obedient to you. And now I'm suffering. You're not hoeing, owning, you're not you're not taking up, you're part of the deal. You're not holding up your part of the deal because Jesus, I've obeyed you and you're obligated to bless me." That's not the gospel, that's legalism. The gospel gives us thankfulness to God for every good thing we have. It's a gift of grace. And the gospel gives us faith in a father who loves us, even when we suffer. And that's the difference between legalism and grace. I don't know about you, but maybe you can see why I am a recovering Pharisee and a recovering legalist. Because I have fallen prey to all three of these things so many times and still do too often. Finally, and very quickly, what's the operating system of the repentant? Here it is. Boom, boom, boom. I'm a great sinner and I need a great Savior. That Savior say it will save me by grace alone from first to last. And therefore, my entire life will be one of repentance. If you would hold that up on, this, on the screen so that people can see it. Therefore, because of grace, my whole life will be one of repentance. I love the way Randy Pope, our lead pastor, has defined repentance. He talked about it just a few weeks ago. Repentance is turning away from my sin and confessing that I was trying to find in something else the satisfaction of my soul instead of the love of Jesus. And repentance is turning back to being satisfied with Jesus instead of trying to find our satisfaction in that other thing. That's a beautiful definition of repentance. Martin Luther, the leader of the Protestant Reformation, nailed on the door of the Church of Wittenberg 95 statements, 95 theses that needed to be debated, he thought. And the very first one was this. I never knew this till a few years ago. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Wow. Now, how is it that our entire life is to be one of repentance? What he means partly here is we don't just start with repentance, we live with repentance all of our lives. But I think that our whole lives are lives of repentance for three other reasons. First of all, if we understand how huge God's law is, we'll see how often we need to repent. One of the other staff members of our church told me just the other week, he has gained a new discipline in his life, and that is three or four times a day he stops and he pauses. He reflects upon the last several hours and he asks himself, is there anything I need to repent of? And he said every single time he finds something he needs to repent of, You might think, that sounds terrible to be always repenting. No, it's wonderful to be always repenting. That's the way it's supposed to be. Remember a number of years years ago, asking one of the leaders of our denomination, a man whom God has and is using in a great way, how do you find the stamina to do what you do in your ministry? It was just astounding to me, the pace he kept. And he paused and he thought, and he said, the answer is lots of repentance. (laughs) The more we repent the more we find the power of Jesus. I think a second reason our entire life is one of repentance is this. Repentance and faith are like two sides of one coin. Whenever I am repenting from sin, if it's gospel repentance, it is belief in Jesus. And also, whenever I am believing in Jesus, I'm repenting from sin. You may not have thought about it that way, but it's true. When I'm believing in Jesus and following Jesus, I'm repenting from sin. So if all of my life is to be a life of faith, then all of my life is also a life of repentance. And then thirdly and lastly, all of life is repentance for a believer because of just what John Owen said. We look to Jesus as the one who bears the iniquity of our holy things, who gathers the weeds of our duties and makes them acceptable to God. So as odd as it sounds, we repent even in the midst of our good deeds that God would forgive us and he would accept for Jesus' sake what we do. It sounds wild, but it's true. The lifestyle of repentance. Now, here's the bottom line of this message, and it's this. It can be more dangerous spiritually to be religious and good than to be rebellious and bad because we are self-deceived. It's a disease that hides itself. Here's the danger. You can be outwardly obedient to God in a pretty remarkable manner just because of pride and fear. You know what? There is an obedience that is produced by faith in Jesus, that brings a result that is sweet, that is beautiful, that brings us close to Jesus. It is not like the obedience of the legalist who's trying to prove himself. It's the obedience of a loving child who knows his father's love. And that makes all the difference in the world. It really does. Where do we find the cross of Jesus in this passage? I've taught on this passage a number of times in my life, but I've never seen the cross in this passage until the last two weeks. And here's where I found it. When the tax collector begs for mercy, and he says, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. The word for mercy that is used here is not the common Greek word for mercy. A better translation would be, Lord, be propitious toward me, the sinner. What is propitiation? Propitiation. Propitiation is is the turning aside of holy wrath through the satisfaction of righteousness. That's propitiation. And where was propitiation made? On the cross. 1 John 2 says that Jesus himself is the propitiation for our sins. And when I saw that, I thought to myself, here was Jesus. And if he spoke this in Greek, and we don't know if he spoke Greek or Aramaic when he said it, but if he was speaking Greek, he was using the very word that would point to his death for sinners like this tax collector, for sinners like this Pharisee, and for sinners like you and me. And the truth of the matter is, it's the cross that produces forgiveness, and it's the cross that produces repentance, and it's the cross that produces an obedience that tastes sweeter than the legalist has ever experienced. And that's the good news for religious moral people. Let's pray as we close. Oh Lord Jesus, we do come before you today recognizing that we often hide our love for ourselves under our good deeds and that we mask our rebellion by our morality. Oh Lord, give us the hearts of repentance. May we repent often and quickly in every day so that we run to the cross of Jesus 24-7 And may we know His sweet love, and may it change our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia, with services Saturday night at 6 and Sunday morning at 9 and 1045. Please visit our website for more information at www.perimeter.org. Be sure to visit the media resources section to give us your feedback and find other messages from our teaching team.